1: This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka, that is me. I'm talking to Jessica Lesson, the founder and CEO of The Information. It's your second trip on this show. Welcome back, Jessica.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: I'd be better if we saw you in person, but we all know why we can't. One day, one day I'll see you again One day. You say you listen to this show and we talk about you on this show all the time because we spend a lot of time talking about business models and we often talk about paid subscriptions and your success. So it seems right to have you back on to tell us how the information is doing. I don't think there's anyone who listens to this podcast who doesn't know what the information is, but if they don't, if they've never heard this before, explain what the information is.
2: The information is a publication that covers the technology business. We are a subscription business and we've been around for about seven years. So um, that's what we do. We live and breathe the business of tech and we try and be relevant to an audience of business leaders who's trying to figure out what's happening in Silicon Valley and beyond.
1: You were gunning for the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times or, or trying to pick off some of the readers or trying to get some of the readers to also subscribe to you. Let's do the the highlights really quickly. You, you started seven years ago and change, um, bootstrapped the company. You haven't taken outside funding as far as I know.
2: Correct. No outside funding.
1: Uh, and so how many subscribers do you have today?
2: We oh you're so clever Peter we don't disclose our numbers but um, we that's have not a lot very more, clever of me <laughs> We have a lot more than we did um, last year which is wonderful because it's it's been a big year despite things um, we have I mean we have in the tens of thousands of subscribers who are paying us and about uh, about half a million subscribers who are not paying us but who are reading content.
1: I'm gonna guesstimate 35,000 paid subs. My ballpark?
2: You can guesstimate all day long, sir. I just, you know. You have um, played
1: this game before. How many? How many employees do you have?
2: Um, I think forty-two or three now. So um, we um, have been expanding the team and expect to probably add another, you know, huge ten to twenty this year, maybe. So um, doing a lot of hiring.
1: And the 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 rack price for an information subscription is what these days?
2: Three hundred and ninety-nine dollars a year.
1: Not cheap but a bargain, Not you would cheap, argue. But
2: many of our subscribers, when I say that, they said, oh, I, based on the quality, I thought I should add a zero. So it's all relative.
1: So I want to talk to you about, we'll get back to the the subscription business and how that's working for you and for other people. But um, I want to start off by talking about something you write. You have, a, you have a weekly column, comes out on Saturday. It's one of my favorite reads. Um, I recommend it to everyone. And either this week or the last week, you had one about big tech and media making up. Your argument was that that they'd been at uh, at loggerheads for a while, and now things seem to be patched up. Patched up, but since then Rupert Murdoch has come out with a screed yelling about social media. Um, his New York Post ran a screed from Josh Hawley complaining that he was being censored by by big tech and social media. Uh, Andreessen Horowitz, one of the premier maybe the most powerful uh, uh, VC firm in the, in the Valley announced that they are going to start their own publication, which is yep. quite clearly an end run around publications like yours and the one I work for. So do we still think that the big tech and media yeah, have, have, have made enough. up?
2: I mean, I, I don't think um, so. What I was writing about in that piece um, was, I think a sort of detente between basically the big tech platforms and big publications like the new york times like the wall street journal that have for years and you've been leading the documentation of this wanted more money for their content from the tech platforms and i i think it's notable that in many cases the tech companies are paying out those sums you know facebook has new news tabs that is significant enough to the new york times that they mention it in their earnings reports as contributing to revenue so um I think,
1: and R- Rupert Murdoch's company held a big event with Facebook yeah, announcing page. announcing the payments that Mark Zuckerberg was going to hand him.
2: The Wall Street Journal has a multi-year Apple News deal that who knows if it makes sense for either side. But um, what I think has happened and, is that the tech companies have realized it's better to have sometimes these publications on your side than against you. And, and these aren't hugely meaningful sums to them. So I think that part, Has changed, and it's worth noting because three years ago we would have been here talking about how acrimonious it was. I think you're absolutely right, though. There, there's um, so that's on the
1: business side of the relationship, right? What about the editorial side? Do you think
2: editorial side? I mean, thankfully, I think publications are still coming out swinging against tech, which I think is a very important thing. It's one of the reasons I started The Information seven years ago. You didn't see a lot of that. You saw a lot of hype. You saw a lot of look how much this founder is worth. So, um, you know, reporters and their editors aren't gonna back off and they shouldn't, and that's very healthy for the business. It's leading to something you mentioned, which I'm uh, really noodling on right now though, which is more of these senior powerful leaders in tech wanting to do an end run around the press, whether it's chit-chatting all day on Clubhouse um, or in Andreessen Horowitz cases, Launching, as we broke in the information, a new media publication where they're hiring, you know, I, I suspect dozens of staff to be a go to source for news. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think we in the media have to be very vigilant about what um, leaders, particularly in tech, who are very tech savvy, are doing um, to get their own message out right now.
1: I want to back up for one second. You said, uh, you, you said. Tech is coming, uh, the press is coming out swinging against big tech, and that's good. And I'm sure that when people who listen to this podcast say, ah, see, conf- we've confirmed another, another bit of confirmation that, that, that media is biased against tech, that they're angry oh. about <laughs> tech. They cover tech, but they don't like it. I'm generally not very interested in this. I think it's kind of a fake feud. But do you have any sympathy for, for tech folks who do feel like they are, they have been unfairly uh, targeted over X the last four years, five years?
2: Absolutely not. Not an ounce of sympathy, no, because I think the issues and challenges um, that these companies and their growing power present are major. I do think the one area I am sympathetic to the grousing tech exec is the lack of coverage, the sort of narrow scope of coverage, right? I think there's a lot happening in the world of technology that is interesting, that is important that is hard to understand and not being written about. And so um, I, I would love more of that. You know, I'm, I'm sitting down to interview Sam Altman, who's running OpenAI, and I'm preparing my questions for him. And it's a range of focusing in on the challenges of AI, but I'm actually inherently curious around all these things I haven't thought about that maybe AI could help as well. And so I think we need more of that, But but in no way do we need to to pull back. And I, I'm frankly a little tired of it too, and of, of, of the grousing, but but it's it's accelerating and it's getting louder. And technology is giving a bigger mouthpiece to people who feel a real animosity towards the press. And I think the environment during the Trump administration has empowered that and, and we have to be vigilant.
1: So I don't like the idea of Peter Thiel bankrupting uh, Gawker, uh, uh, especially... Uh doing it uh, anonymously for some period of time. Um, And there's all sorts of problems with the sort of Trump fake news argument. But if uh, VCs or anybody else want to start their own publication to get their own message out and it'll be somewhere in between useful and, and Pravda, what's the problem with that?
2: It's, you know, I think if you think of it as like their content marketing arm, sure. I mean, I, I don't have a deep problem with it. Um, I want to hire all the best journalists in the world. I do not them want them to go work for Andreessen and Horowitz. So um, practically speaking, I, I think it's important that talented journalists get opportunities to do real journalism. And so um, I worry about that Um.
1: You had a tweet that said, it's a call to arms to do what, this is a, in reference to the Andreessen Horowitz publication, which doesn't exist yet. It'll come out, I think, this summer. It's a call to arms to do what we do better than ever and to show readers why journalism was, must always be independent. And just to play devil's advocate, and I don't want to go work for Andreessen Horowitz either. You know, so what? If they've they they, they had had Twitter forever, they had they used to blog a lot. Um, Mark Andreessen can go on any stage he wants, whenever he wants, um, and, and talk it at length what's the problem with why Why is this a, a in any way something we should spend much time it's interesting but why should we spend much time caring about it as journalists
2: well for their hiring just to go back to that i think that is a big deal and they could potentially hire a lot of them and and i think the experience of a journalist working um in that publication is going to be very different could you write learn about some interesting technologies yes but I think we need journalists asking the tough questions and pushing back on power, not being a mouthpiece for it. And I have learned so much from reading blogs from smart investors about technology. I'm pro that. But to say, as they did, that they want to be the go-to source, I think misleads the public around what should be the standard for information for understanding companies. And it shouldn't be from the companies themselves. And... That's why I'm concerned. I agree. You know, a couple months out, if it's some great op-eds and, you know, we write on the big themes, it it could be a net positive. But again, we want journalists working for publications that are independent and not going to constrain the topics they cover.
1: I mean, one thing that will be interesting, right? I think every every journalist and writer at some point uh, learns uh, that that conflict is kind of the the nature of a of a good story, uh, and sometimes you'll get a critique that says, "Well, you're making up a conflict to make to make an interesting story." But it, you, if it's a good story, that you're not making up the conflict, one has to exist. It's inherent. It's hard to imagine. The Entree Horowitz version of a conflict, except it, maybe it's brave technologists taking on the the established whatever, um, and so you're very unlike it, it will, I think, make it hard for them to make compelling journalism in the same way that, like, um, not the athletic. Oh my God. Um, the Players' Tribune was an attempt mm-hmm. to sort of do that for, for athletes in, in the start and uh, Sports Illustrated, go around Sports Illustrated and ESPN. And I think it is not a coincidence that you don't hear much about the Players' Tribune anymore. I think it's hard for them to make interesting content from a source, you know, a single source story, basically.
2: And I'm worried that we've lost sight. or We're making it complicated or hard to figure out what journalism is. And this is a broader trend, right? We see... Fabulous journalists who have newsletters and do commentary and journalism. I, I do commentary and journalism too. Of course, m- many people do, but I like the public to be consuming as many new facts and information as possible in a given day. And I think the more we just pump more opinion and commentary into the ether, we are launching an opinion section. So again, I think there's room for both. But as a society, we're shifting the balance, I think, really far away from uncovering new facts, which is really, really hard and can be really, really expensive. And so those are the kinds of new publications I wanna see out there. And so I think the, the other commentary arms of the industry, it's getting a lot of attention right now and that does worry me on a relative basis.
1: You have teed me up for the obligatory Substack question. We should actually figure out, we could do like a professional podcast and get like an audio cue whenever we have to mention Substack from now on. Um, So you're referencing Substack obliquely and now directly. What do you think of the paid newsletter and the newsletter phenomenon in general?
2: I am super excited that writers have more options for um, building businesses and making living and making money. I mean, I think that journalists should think about what our content is worth to our reader. That is a healthy dynamic. That's why we launched as a subscription business seven years ago. And so the fact that you have more writers, A, doing that and have tools to do that, I think is excellent. Personally, you know, the ones I'm taken to are the ones that, again... Are unearthing a lot of new information, um, as opposed to just commenting on the same old thing. But I shout,
1: shout shout a couple of those out. Who's who's doing reporting in their Substack or news or or, or other newsletter? It's not yeah. a Substack.
2: So I am a fa- you know I've got a four year old and a two year old, and so I like Emily Oster's <laughs> Substack about like parenting, and um, she it's very data heavy. Casey Newton is a great journalist and and a great columnist at the Platformer. Um, Alex Kandrowitz had a, a good scoop this week on in his tech stub stack. So and um, Eric Newcomer, I'm a fan of, was, um, worked at the information as a while, for a while before Bloomberg. So I, I read them all um, and I'm just a big supporter of journalists and journalism, so I w- will pay for them all as well. But by and large, it, it, it's sort of mostly my opinion diet quotient. Um, which I like and is sort of entertaining and stimulating to me is not solving a different problem I see in journalism right now around just, you know, the the size of the reporting um, industry, if you will.
1: Right. So, I mean... If I can sum it up, right, I think what you're getting at is that a lot of this newsletters, we can call them substacks or not, um, are some sort of aggregation of other people's news with commentary, definite utility there. But you're generally not sort of breaking new ground with a lot of this stuff. Do you think that's inherent to the newsletter model or inherent to the the substack model where it's sort of sole proprietors?
2: I think the, the type of person who leads a, a solo newsletter is, is probably you, a mix of both, right? And and so if you're trying to break newsroom, reporting colleagues are super helpful because they have a lot of sources around the world. So yeah, I think that's probably, and if you look at just the blogging ecosystem when it first built up, however long ago, you know, voice and opinion is an important part of that. Um I also, when it comes to what I think of Substack, I mean, I I also think, you know, I I wonder about the business from the perspective of they take a very small cut, but um, why are they taking any cut? You know, I, I think, I often think we at The Information have a whole stack of technology to host newsletters, to help them grow, to do lots of other things. I'd be willing to give that to free for a writer under certain circumstances as well. And so... Right. And so
1: today we saw Twitter announce that they're getting into that business and, you know, who knows what that's going to look like, but they can certainly afford to take less than Substack if they really want to push those.
2: Absolutely. So, I mean, all I, I've covered enough startups to know that the good ones survive despite the competition. But I do think the model of tech support for independent writers, or there, there's just a proliferation of channels. And I think it's something Publication like we'll try and get into it, and I think other publications will as well.
1: So let's let's broaden it out and talk about uh, the, the paid ecosystem in general. This has been something you've been very ardent about since you launched. This is going to be paid. Uh, th- th- there's inherent value in having a paid thing. Um, I think you're a proselytizer for it. I don't think that's pejorative. I am. I've um, found one. You guys, you guys have uh, incubators where you try to encourage other folks to start one. Uh, Richard Rushfield, uh, who runs the Ankler, which is now a Substack model, had, had worked with you figuring out how to get his thing off the ground. And the thing that I continue to be worried about is that it seems like the paid business works for what you do, business and financial news. There's sort of obvious reasons why that can work. It, I can see it working for specialty publications, um, where either it's something you care about again as a business and you're willing to pay for, or, or it's just some, it's personal, uh, something you're personally. Uh, you care about, um, and where I worry about it not working is in local news where there has been to date no solution for the, the mm-hmm. expanding local news desert. Is there any reason to think paid could work in local?
2: There is. Um, I agree with you that it's it's more complicated, but, but take the 19th, right? So I'm the chairperson of the board of the 19th, a new publication started by Emily Ramshaw to cover politics and policy. Um, through, you know, um, the perspective of gender and something that's really been ignored, a nonprofit model. So the the Texas Tribune
1: model that that she had worked on at the Um, Texas Tribune.
2: Least commercial model you could come up with, a thriving membership program, something that, you know, Emily would say in the team there has been essential to not just building their resources, but building their community. And so I think we've got to get out of this idea that it's either going to be paid or unpaid, and you have to pick a side, and it's good versus evil. I mean, I even BuzzFeed, which I would put on the side of, you know, really believing and, and pointing out some of the challenges of the paid model, has a membership program, right? So I, I think this era we're in now is publications are healthier with a mix. And I also hope that we realize major news broken by a subscription publication still influences the world to the positive you know and that information gets out there you know uh, the Washington Post could expose some big yep. scandal with the president it could be available to paying subscribers but but the world is better off because of that journalism and so that's how I see these these sort of discussions right now you um, and I'm just thrilled that more publications are getting revenue from their readers as well as from other sources.
1: Can we just go back to local for a second? Because yes. do we have examples of sort of, uh, you know, and, and we've had both Emily on talking about uh, the Texas Tribune and John Thornton, who, who yep. was running the the journalism project, American Journalism Project, I think it's called, um, was trying to create more Texas Tribunes around around the country. Um, and his conclusion is that, that uh, sort of a... a Commercial model doesn't work. Period. Whether it's subscriptions or advertising, can you point to examples of sort of new publications that are subscription-based that do local news, like in a in a serious way that can sort of provide a community resource?
2: So, in our accelerator, the information there's a publication called Detour Detroit. Local news in Detroit has a subscription membership model. Um, I think it's Berkeley side, I believe in California as well. So, so there there are some and you know, publication, they're doing an amazing work. I really do believe the nonprofit model has a place as well in local. And I think it's going to take a lot more experimentation and support and, um, I'm very impressed, but what I, what John is doing and, um, and others like Elizabeth green, his partners on it. So, um, I I don't have a great answer, but I think, um, it's going to be a mix of things. It really will. And, subscription or membership models don't have to be expensive. Um, It doesn't mean that they're gonna be for everyone, but $5, $10, $15, right? It, It can all scale and it can all be meaningful. We're
1: gonna take a quick break. We'll be right back with Jessica Lesson.
0: Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO, Mike Gitlin?
1: So you run this incubator, um, give us, give us some, some advice. We don't have to join the incubator for what have you learned about running your subscription business in the last seven years? What did you think at year one that has turned out not to be true or you've had to adjust, you know, I see you about once a year, um, and I know that you're, you know, in addition to running into doing actual journalism and in writing, you're really passionate about sort of figuring out the, the mechanics of subscriptions. So what, what are you, what have you learned that you can share?
2: It keeps coming back to it actually being about the journalism and the content. i, I got to tell you, even when I compare notes with other um, leaders in this business, marketing, brand, funnel, tech, it all helps. It's 20% lift or something like that. And that at our scale and at other scale, that's super meaningful. And I, I want to make it 25 or whatever, but it's still, you know, the big stories. It's still um, Andy Rubin accused of sexual harassment at Google, or here's the inside financials of ByteDance, the most valuable private company no one's writing about. Um, that's what moves the needle. It moves the needle for us. It moves the needle for businesses like us in other industries. And, um, that, that makes me so happy because it means that what's good for our business is also good for our our journalism mission and good for everything else.
1: So uh, I get that a big splashy story would bring in new readers to the top of the funnel. Um, I would also think that like for a publication like yours, where your, your folks want sort of a consistent level of reporting, that some of them probably aren't as moved by a splashy story and they're looking for sort of more mundane stuff that isn't that maybe even that fun to create. Um, and no one's going to win an award for it, but provides value. Do, you, do How do you balance that stuff? Like you guys do these org charts which are which are incredibly difficult to do. I it's yeah. obvious to understand the utility. You're not going to submit that for an award, right? No one's going to. No, gonna, but I like, I
2: think org charts are like some of the sexiest journalism to be honest. I know that's going to sound strange, but it's the definition of information that is closely held that very mm-hmm. few people know that could be of immense value to other people. So I think, you know, that's how we think about it. We think about what is the new information? What's the value, whether it's a a deal scoop, like we just broke the big clubhouse fundraise, which is the the talk of the town out here, or it's, hey, this part of Uber's business that people are really watching closely, you know, is doing this strange thing and here's how it matters. So, um, and our readers are smart. They want something they didn't already know. And- I agree, it doesn't all have to be that, you know, several times a year, big investigation, but there's a high bar for it too. I mean, I I think it's not easy, (laughs) but you know, great journalists can do it consistently.
1: I'm a pretty close reader. Um, Strikes me that one thing you guys didn't spend a lot of time on in the last four years was sort of Trump specific uh, coverage. Um, I wouldn't expect you to write Trump's latest tweet, X, right? Which, um, yeah. But um, obviously of, of huge importance to everyone and, and huge importance to Silicon Valley and lots of stuff there. Was there a conscious effort to sort of steer out of that, either because your readers didn't want it or you thought there was a gap, you could do other stuff?
2: I'd agree we didn't do a ton of it. It wasn't conscious at all. It's just we're always looking to play to our advantages from a reporting standpoint and, um, you know, our advantages were kind of elsewhere last year. So, you know, we spent a lot of time on Trump's ban TikTok, for example, and just sort of the global, what that meant for the tech ecosystem and the venture capital world. Um, we also, you know, certainly wrote a lot about the platform's challenges around, you know, misinformation and policing content and all of that, but that's kind of where we, we focused.
1: So you guys have a, have a great core tech team in Valley and, and outside the Valley. You've got Jessica Tinkle in in New York doing great media stuff. Do you think you'll expand to other industries, other territories? Are you going to end up in L.A.? Are you going to move to D.C.?
2: Um, I mean, I know you
1: have folks in both those places, but 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 do you you see more of it? I mean,
2: I think our first early territory almost five years ago was Hong Kong. And we have a four-person reporting team out there um, that's been really essential and done great work. Um, Yeah, we're we're in expansion mode. You know, my belief is that um, I want to serve all business readers, period, because I think any professional in any industry is following technology. And whether they're leading a retailer or a car company, you know, they need to know what's happening in the tech sector. And um, that's our mission. And um, I think we've about just under half our audience now works in tech. So most of our readers don't work in the industry, but they're coming to us to understand it better. And um, that's really exciting to us. So um, yeah, we'll staff up in a lot of areas. Right now I'm, I'm particularly interested in finance and the world of finance, both from the perspective of markets and deals, but also FinTech and crypto. And so that's probably the next one on our radar.
1: Um, I'm also obligated to ask you how how you did in the pandemic. You guys took a PPP loan like a lot of folks. Um, what's the status of that? Have you repaid it? Do you plan? To, uh, what, yeah, I don't know the- we
2: will we will be repaying a big chunk of it. Um, again, we we took it because we had a um, an event sponsorship business that um, was forecast to hit some pretty big numbers this year, and and kind of went to zero, and so we were able to avoid. Um, you know, any layoffs related to that and, um, we'll be repaying a chunk of it.
1: If a second sort of PPP program opens up, do you think you'd go back for that?
2: Uh, we don't have any plans to, nope.
1: You talked about your expansion. Um, I was prior to talking to you, I was asking folks what I should ask you and I said, what about, what about running into the New York times and the fact they're hiring everyone? Um, Lots of folks have staffed up um, their, their, their tech coverage, and the Times has most obviously put a lot more resources into it. For years, to your and my advantage, they ignored it. Kind mm-hmm. of astonishing. They had like a person there, basically, in the Valley. Um, how do you view the Times as a competitor now?
2: So the talent flows, knock on wood, have actually gone the other way. So we've hired more people than they've hired. So I, I, I'm, I'm proud of that. Um, you've
1: hired more net people than they've hired for, for tech, or you've hired more of oh, their right, people right, no. than they've hired from you? Up
2: between our companies. Um, yeah. But actually, I'm not sure net. I mean, I, I imagine our tech reporting team is bigger than the New York Times' tech reporting team. I'm actually fairly confident it is. Um, but, but it, you know, it's still a, a great question. And particular, I've thought a lot about the fact, you know, when you, it felt to me like after Trump was elected, there was this, oh no, what are we gonna do to fill the hole of coverage when he's gone? And it was like a light bulb went off across you know, New York. Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, they're gonna be the ones that readers wanna read about um, when no one wants to read about Trump. And so you saw this very consistent ramping up, the Times, the Post, you kind of name it. Um, Politico launched a tech publication, right? Just a very clear example of that and i I mean i I think it hasn't slowed our growth or I think affected our business. and I actually see signs that the publications are pulling back from that a little bit when when I talked to people there, I, I heard a direct quote like, you know, Mitch McConnell still drives a lot more traffic than Elon Musk and um i when I heard that, I was shouting from the rooftops, but i um i I think there's there's a healthy balance. And, and I think publications will continue to hire reporters to cover tech as they should. But um, I think compared to the importance of these companies and industries, we could have 10 times as many reporters and there'd still be a lot of stories. And I, I do see the pendulum swinging. Um, one of those publications who had really staffed up on tech reporters, you know, when I asked where they were staffing up now, they said on audio and podcast reporters and not on tech. So um, I feel like things have shifted a little bit, but there's still plenty of room out there.
1: You guys, you guys have a, a podcast. Um, we
2: do the four one one.
1: Seems like you could do more. Got plans we to expand that?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, Tom Doton and now Corey Weinberg have led a really great, um, podcast drops on Fridays. What do you say? Wherever you listen to your podcasts, I feel like that's yeah, I don't it. think
1: we have to say that anymore. You can just say it's a podcast anywhere okay. you know to get it. Unless okay, you have a deal fine. with Apple or Spotify, then you have to say it.
2: I wondered, I wondered, um, yeah. And it's really, I'm sorry,
1: unless you problem. want promotion from Apple or Spotify, then you have to say, I it.
2: See. ah, things never change. Same dynamics, but, um, we'd love to do more in audio. We're talking to, um, some partners who, who specialize it on ways to kind of, um, bring to life some of our reporting. Um, I'm certainly consuming a ton of it. Um, and, and I think our reporters have interest, so we'd love to do more. I'm, I'm also interested in audio for our community as well. You know, we, we, for years have hosted conference calls, now Zoom calls with our subscribers. I'd love to create a way you could like read to the bottom of an article and, you know, join a quick conversation about it as well. Um, So that's something we're experimenting with.
1: Yeah, I mean, because those conference calls are essentially that already, right? You guys will send out a note saying, Jessica, Amir, someone has a big scoop, and they'll be talking about it in half an hour, you can call in.
2: Yep. Yeah, people do. I'm always wondering. I mean, it's really fun and exciting and, and useful as a journalist to convene people with interest in the thing you just wrote about. So I'm curious, um,
1: is, there ever, is there ever a worry that, well, we published everything we knew or we published everything we knew that's reportable. People are going to ask us about stuff that maybe isn't in the article. Is there ever a, a worry that, oh, you know, there's a reason we didn't write that thing you wrote that you just said out loud?
2: I know. I mean, it, it's sort of the same on like a journalist talking on Twitter or going on a podcast, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the, the post, I, I think we... We internalize what we wrote and what we didn't. Um, And I think it's healthy to say, you know, I was asking that question. I didn't get to an answer. We'll continue to kind of think about it. Um, So, yeah, but it's important to remember what we actually published and why.
1: Let's zoom out. Um, We can expand beyond your publication. Um, Every week I read a story about SPACs and BuzzFeed and Vox Media and Vice. I don't see your name ever mentioned generally.
2: No, but we actually got our first one today. Someone reached out about a SPAC. I was... Was, someone someone you know, reached out to
1: say that to, to report on you talking to a SPAC or someone a SPAC pitched you?
2: No, no, no. A SPAC pitch. We got our first SPAC pitch. So I, Congratulations. I, I, it. I know it's a rite of passage, but no, we will we will not be a public company. But yeah, well, why not?
1: Why, why not? Why not? I hear lots of virtues of being public and I hear lots of arguments why you should take the SPAC money. And it always ends up with their market wants it, the money needs to go somewhere. If people want to give you an ungodly sum to take your company public, there's a lot of advantages. Why not do it?
2: I I mean, the information is going to be, and my mission for it is to be a privately owned, you know, um, independent publication forever. I mean, I, I think I'm just out to Why? build something Why? a little bit different. Um, let's see, because I think that's aligned with uh, do, being, doing the best journalism, right? Being beholden to investors can create all sorts of distortions. Um, and I think, you know, I believe in us supporting our growth sort of sustainably because that's what's best for the long term. And so I think others would agree with me, but others have investors who maybe have different timelines and expectations. And I think I feel very fortunate that. Um, we've been able to build the business so, so we don't have to do that and, and we can make the best choices for what's best over the long term.
1: So I said we were going to expand beyond your publication. What do, okay. what do you think happens with the, the SPAC speculation? Do you think we do see the long-fabled roll-up this year? Do you think we really do see combinations? I mean, we've had a few, obviously, including my, my owner, bought New York Magazine. Um, sorry, merged with New York Magazine, if Jim's listening to this. Uh, <laughs> do we see more of that stuff
2: through SPACs? Yes. I mean, I, I think you're seeing SPACs as an appealing way to the public markets because a lot of these businesses are still subscale um, and are not clearly thriving independent public companies. I think there are some exceptions. Wait,
1: wait, wait. pause. So, so, because I think I know the answer to this, but if you're subscale and you're not a thriving company, why is a SPAC good?
2: Well, if you, you need to raise capital, the... Private markets. When you last raised capital, thought you were worth yep. way more than they might think you're worth now.
1: Say one point six or seven billion, or one billion, yeah, billion depending on who you're 1. talking 6, to.
2: Seven, yeah, depending on the count. And um, and your investors would like some liquidity. They're looking at the IPO market right now and what's happening in tech, and they're saying it's time to go, go, go. The window's open. Look at what's happening in the stock market overall. And so you rush out and you hope that um, being publicly listed might make it easier to do a deal because you've got rid of all these hairy preference terms that your private investors were negotiating over and consolidation might be easier.
1: So you go public and then expand by rolling up other companies. That's that's the premise.
2: I think that's what's happening. I think you're just seeing people saying it's a good time to get out. If we can't agree on terms privately, let's help have the public markets decide. I still think it's gonna be hard because, you know, the rationale for some of these roll-ups is tenuous in my opinion. And so I I don't think we're gonna see a flood. I think we'll see some and, you know, they might not be that needle moving to the overall business.
1: You know, we just went through this period where all these high-flying tech companies raised lots of money at increasingly giant valuations, went public and found that the public market didn't support the valuation. I get that these are different kinds of businesses, but it is a little confusing to me now that you'd be able to go out and say, our private investors don't think we're worth this, but the public definitely will.
2: Well, that was certainly true, I'd say, about a year ago. But you look at someone like an Airbnb, right? I mean, Airbnb had a monstrous IPO uh, after a year when their business tanked. And so it, at least the most recent window has said that public investor demand is outstripping supply. And so that's what media companies are banking on. Now, an investor faced with a, a SaaS company growing at 60% a year with recurring revenue is very different from some of these other companies. And, and we'll find out soon. I, I'm grabbing the popcorn. I'm excited to see what happens.
1: I am uh, excited and uh, equal degrees trepidation, I think. But that's the nature of the business. Um, yeah. You have an opinion section you mentioned before. You're launching an opinion section with Kevin Delaney, formerly of the yep. Journal and then Quartz and the Times and now you. Um, why do you need an opinion section?
2: We need an opinion section because I think other opinion sections are leaving a huge opportunity on the table, to be honest. I mean, I think so much of commentary these days is seems like it's like trolling one side or the other, right? It's very designed to provoke an emotional reaction. Um, I've always loved reading people's perspectives that are really thoughtful on tough issues. I mean, we've done pieces around okay, how should you really reform Section 230 and think about the content liability of the tech platforms? It's one thing to say, you know, these companies need to take more responsibility. It's another thing to kind of outline the steps that you think they should actually take. And so that's what we're trying to do. You know, opinion that is really meaty on ideas, proposals, um, because there's a lot of complicated... Questions out there.
1: Do you think being a, a subscription-only business makes, means you have to provide a different kind of opinion section? You know, your, your, your stories are, are are excellent, and they are also fairly dry. I um, mean, there's great details in them, but right, you're not, there's not a lot of invective, there's strip out a lot of adjectives. Um, you, you don't want to use an opinion section to sort of quicken someone's pulse, even if it involves some, some trolling?
2: I just edited a lead, Peter, that I thought was quite spiffy. So I don't know. I okay. mean, I think maybe we're trying to, um, I like a good spiffy lead. Um, I think we'll see. You know, to be honest, I, I think I've looked at opinion sections of other subscription publications that I think have become um, very predictable. <laughs> and you know exactly what the column is going to say. And and frankly, that is sort of boring and doesn't teach me a lot. So I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, just by working with great columnists, we can be really interesting and, and not kind of overthink it beyond that. But no, I haven't um there there's no different sort of set of editing standards around adjectives for our for our opinion section. So fair enough. At least not yet.
1: You're seven years in. You're staying private forever yep if you change your mind you you need to come tell me first so we can talk about it we can do an emergency pod i much prefer talking with you than talking about you um and i look forward to seeing you in person thanks jessica thanks peter thanks again to jessica great to have her back thanks to joel and jelani for editing and producing this show thanks to our advertisers who allow us to bring you this show for free no subscription just free i mean you should subscribe to it obviously uh, via apple or spotify where we get your podcast but it's free cool, huh? Um, thanks again to you guys for listening. This is Recode Media. We'll be back next week. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work